welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com. My name is Kristen Guile, and I'm the Chief Content Officer of A Sweat Life. And I want to know, who is the first female fitness figure that you vividly remember? For me, it's Mia Hamm. I was 10 years old in 1998 when Mia and the U.S. women won the World Cup in an epic penalty kick shootout against China. And yes, that was the one with the Brandy Chastain sports bra moment. By the time I was participating in sports, Title IX had been around for nearly 20 years, and the 90s felt like women were really stepping into their athletic power through sports. But long before I was born, women had been quietly, and then loudly, crusading for the physical benefits of exercise and why women both needed and deserved to work out. It all starts in the 1950s with a dynamic young woman named Body Pruden, whose report to President Eisenhower on how America's children were physically unfit led to the formation of the President's Council on Youth Fitness. Yes, that is the organization that put on that dreaded test that you might have taken in elementary school gym. But before she was shaking hands with the president, Bonnie was an expert rock climber, a mountaineer, and the owner of an old elementary school that she had bought and turned into what she named the Institute for Physical Fitness. It housed three gyms, two dance studios, an obstacle course, and America's first climbing wall. In many ways, we credit Bonnie as the pioneer in women's fitness. Before her, women were afraid to exercise because doctors and popular culture told women that your uterus would fall out if you exercise too hard. Yes, really. I had never heard of Bonnie Pruden, and I'm guessing Bonnie is a stranger to you too. And I know that she wasn't the only female fitness leader that we've lost to time. That's why today we are talking to Danielle Friedman, the author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. The idea for Danielle's book was sparked about five years ago from a viral essay that she wrote for The Cut about the secret sexual history of Barr. Inspired by what she discovered and the response that she elicited, Danielle realized that there was an opportunity to write and research way more about the history of women in fitness. So decade by decade, her book covers the evolution of how women were accepted into the fitness world from bar to running to yoga to strength training and more. She covers moments of cultural revolution, like when jazzercise was a part of the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Olympics, and when Jane Fonda found her way into millions of Americans' homes through her insanely popular workout videos. Through it all, Danielle carefully analyzes the messaging that women heard about their bodies and what the ideal figure was and how they could get it through exercise. Right now, we are at a time where women are encouraged to exercise, to get strong, and to feel empowered. But it wasn't so long ago that the messaging was much more reductive, even from the women that we now recognize as heroines in fitness history. Anecdotally, I know a lot of women who have struggled with disordered relationships to exercise and body image, and it was eye-opening to realize the extent to which these aren't new issues. So here's what you can look forward to in this interview. Danielle gives me a quick overview of the history of women in fitness, which you can also get from her excellent book. We also get into how women's clothes evolved to support the moving woman. Sports bra, after all, is a relatively recent invention, and Black women who were instrumental in changing the fitness landscape as well. 
finally, we end with what she would add to her book now if she had the opportunity to write a pandemic-specific chapter. It was a great interview. Danielle is so smart and so engaging, and I'm so excited for you to listen to it. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com. I'm Kristen Guile, the Chief Content Officer, and today, as part of our deep dive into the history of fitness, I am talking with Danielle Friedman. Danielle is the author of the book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. And she's also an award-winning journalist whose feature writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Cut, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Glamour, Health, and many other publications. Danielle, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, we're excited. Um, I just finished reading your book last week. Uh, everyone has to comment on the cover because it's the most <laughs> beautiful thing I've ever seen. Um, Thank you. And it was such a fun read. And you know, you really did a great job of sort of taking the history of women's exercise through the decades, highlighting the heroes beyond Jane Fonda, who I think was the only person that that I would have really thought about before going into the depths of your book. Um, but I'd love to start at the beginning and hear a little bit about how you started thinking about the history of women's exercise. I know that your article for The Cut really sort of helped pave the way and sort of spark that interest. So tell me your your origin story. Yeah, sure. Um, so the book began five years ago um, when I was actually getting ready for my wedding. I'm always a little bit sheepish to say that, but um, but I was... I was getting ready for my wedding and I decided to venture into my first boutique fitness studio. I have, I'm a lifelong runner, but I'd never really done boutique fitness. And so I decided to take some bar classes. Um, while I was there, I, I loved how strong the classes made me feel. Um, I also, as a women's health journalist, and a feminist journalist was intrigued by the fact that many of the moves in class felt very sexual in nature. And it was something that was sort of funny to me because no one was like acknowledging it during class, yeah. you know, anytime you serious. hear someone say tuck, it's, it's yes. the hardest thing to describe. But I, I remember my first bar class, probably <laughs> around the same time you took yours. And I was like, what the heck do they mean? What is, what is tucking? Am I just supposed I to like, squeeze my butt? But yeah. And then once you get sort of into the, the nuance of it, you're like, oh, what are, what are we doing in here? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. There's a whole like secret language of bar classes that it takes, it takes a minute to kind of, uh, decode. Um, so at the time in particular, I was doing a lot of reporting on sexual health and I, I wondered, I was like, are bar classes actually benefiting women's sexual health? Um, and so I started looking into it and that, simple question led me to this much richer, more complicated origin story of Lottie Burke, the woman who invented bar in the late 1950s, who was herself, I describe her as a free love revolutionary. She um, was very much ahead of her time in that she spoke very openly about sex and sexual desire. And one of the reasons she created her workout was to encourage women to, um, or to help women have better sex lives and to encourage them to kind of embrace their physicality um, and sexuality. So I was blown away by that story. I couldn't believe that it wasn't more widely known. I wrote about it for the cut. Um, and I was, you know, the story went viral. And I was also, I was amazed to find that even a lot of bar instructors 
were unfamiliar with the origin story. While I was reporting that story, I also, at one point, I, I thought, you know, it would be great to talk to the person who wrote, like, the definitive history of women's fitness. And I was really shocked to discover that that book did not exist. I'm a former book editor. I started my career as a book editor, and I'd always been sort of on the lookout, you know, for ideas that I felt passionately enough about and where there was enough to say about it to, to, to go deep and maybe explore at book length. And it was at that moment that the light bulb went off and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. And for me, it just, it it brought together kind of everything I'd been doing in my career up to that point, as well as um, my personal interest in fitness and, and women's health and many of the things I care about. Yeah. there There is so much to say on this topic. And for me personally, when I, I moved to Chicago in 2011, and that was right about the time where like boutique group fitness classes mm. were starting to be a thing. And that's something that we've really, I don't know if capitalized on is the right word here to sweat life, but like that's how I made many of my best friends. That's how I met my boss. That's mm. how like I've formed a lot of those relationships today. And I, I just think there's so much to say both about the business of women's place in fitness, the marketing that has been done to sell these classes. And you did a great job highlighting how that changed over time. Um, mm. And I really feel like we're going to see a lot of like scholarship in this area going forward because there there's a lot of rich text, if you will. Yes. Yes. I feel like I just sort of scratched the surface in my book. You're right. Um, why don't you talk us for readers who maybe haven't picked up your book yet, um, talk us through sort of the, you sort of organized by decades. You went through a pretty linear timeline um, sort of mm-hmm. talk us through like a, a very brief history, starting with with our girl Bonnie. Sure, yeah, and I just just want to say at the outset that that was a major goal of mine to basically show how everything was connected um, in in the history of fitness, and you know because I think until now it's been, and I, I write this in the introduction, but women's fitness especially has kind of been treated as like a collection of disparate you know fads and crazes, mm-hmm. and in telling this larger story of really of women's empowerment. And then also, and I'll get into this, but you know, the sort of the, both the liberation and the oppression that, that can exist within and that has existed within parts of fitness culture. um, I wanted to show how it was all, it was all connected. So with that in mind, the book begins in the 1950s, which <laughs> was a period, you know, it was the post-World War II era, and it was a time of very strict gender norms when um, men were supposed to act like men and women were supposed to act like women, and masculinity was really associated with strength and femininity with with weakness to a large extent, you know, women were encouraged by magazines to ask their man to help them open the pickle jar, you know, and they were encouraged to lose to men in games. And on top of all of that, Americans were embracing what they called the modern way of life, which was this life of increased comfort and leisure and convenience. People were driving more and sitting more at work and in front of the TV and using their bodies really less than than ever before. So Bonnie Pruden recognized this and thought it was a travesty. And she was, she was a very, all of the figures I write about are kind of larger than life in their own way. But she set out on a mission to try to get America moving. Um, she she did a lot of work with kids, but she also focused on women. She wrote a best-selling book called How to Keep Slender and Fit After 30. Um, 
playing to our audience at the time. <laughs> yes, yes. I, as you can see, this history is so rich. I have to be careful because I could talk about Bonnie for an hour. So yes. Um, <laughs> well, and she keeps making appearances throughout your book yes. too. Like there's a lot of callbacks to her. So, and yeah. she was someone that I had never heard of. And I think of myself as pretty in the know for fitness. Yeah. She really um, was a forgotten pioneer. And, and she when she is mentioned in historical texts, it, it has been as more of a footnote, you know, um, as opposed to like a real life woman and, and trailblazer. And so I really wanted to kind of bring her to life for readers. She was very savvy, though, in that she recognized, as many of her contemporaries did at that time, that it would never have worked to just sell strength for strength's sake to women. That idea was a little bit too threatening at that time. And so she, you know, she encouraged women to do push-ups and to, to <laughs> develop muscle, which was pretty radical, but she, she packaged it as like a, a little bit of a beauty tool, mm-hmm. um, which made it acceptable, you know, for in a society that was very wary of women's strength one of her catchphrases, she had all sorts of like Bonnie-isms and <laughs> it was um, under every curve, there's a muscle, no muscle, no curve, which yeah. is like partly, you know, <laughs> partly true. Anyhow, okay. And if you think of all of the figures as sort of women who are passing the baton yes. to each other, yes. you know, with each decade, we move from the fifties and sixties into, well, into the the heart of the swinging 60s in London. And that's where Lottie Burke really comes in when she rose to fame with uh, what became the bar workout. And like I mentioned, this it was perfect timing with the sexual revolution and, and the rise of the miniskirt, which mm-hmm. sent women <laughs> to studios to, to want to shape their figures. And Lottie's studio was really significant because it was group fitness in the way that we think of it today, which was very rare at that time. Um, from the 60s, we move into the 1970s and the feminist movement. I kind of bring us back to the, the United States in that era. And the 70s, there, were, there was just like a confluence of fitness booms. Mm-hmm. I look at the rise of women's running and in particular, Catherine Switzer and the, mm-hmm. um, the barriers she was up against. 1969 is when aerobic dancing and jazzercise were, was invented. There were actually yeah. two programs. They were both invented then. And then it jazzercise became, trademarked. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it became, yes. And it became, you know, that's what became known as just aerobics as mm-hmm. we moved into the the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the seventies, women's strength training and some of the first women's bodybuilding competitions began to gain some traction. Um, heading into the eighties, we saw Jane Fonda and the rise of the home workout, the VHS, mm-hmm. um, which became just a booming industry, the home fitness industry by the end of that decade. From there, um, even though the rise of women's strength training began late 70s, it was it was in the early 90s when we saw like abs of steel, buns of steel, these, you know, this push for hard bodies, really. Yeah. Um, so I interviewed Tammy Lee Webb, the star of Buns of Steel. Um, after that, it was the rise of yoga, um, which I argue in the book and others have pointed out as well, was sort of is widely seen as kind of like a reaction, almost like a backlash to that, that feel the burn, hard body mentality of the 80s and 90s. Um, yoga 
was sort of the perfect thing at the time for, for people who felt like burnt out and just wanted a gentler form of exercise. And then we, we get much closer to, you know, the present day and the rise of boutique fitness and luxury gyms and, I could keep going, but we're getting, <laughs> we're inching closer to it 2022. Looks, I know. And I don't want you to to summarize your entire book too in depth because I want people <laughs> to buy it, but that, that was perfect. Thank you. Um, sure. One of the things I was wondering as you were going through all of those, you know, obviously your book focuses on on women and that's what we are selfishly pretty interested in. Our audience mm-hmm, is mostly mm-hmm. millennial women, a lot in urban areas who have this access to fitness as sort of a leisure and social activity. How were men developing in fitness around this time too? You know, in my head, I can kind of make a case for like, well, they were doing some of the same things. They were doing the running and the bodybuilding. But I feel like you don't really hear a lot about the trends that, you know, were happening in like small communities or the marketing messages that they were responding to. It seems like men maybe didn't have like as diverse of fitness activities as like Mm. the women's sphere Mm. is what you go over in your book. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's been a major evolution, of course, in men's fitness as well. Um, The period when my book begins in the 50s, as I was alluding to, it was also, it was sort of equally um, unusual for men (laughs) to Mm -hmm. work out in a regular way. There were actually a lot of stigmas against male bodybuilders. You know, there was this idea that brain and brawn were incompatible. Mm -hmm. So like men who worked on their muscles were thought to be kind of like... I'm reading about that right now in Bill Hayes' book, Sweat. He's talking yeah. about how like, the ancient Greeks um, really thought there was like, you got dumber the bigger you got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you think, of, if you look at like um, pop culture and films, you know, like the, the kind of henchmen thugs are the ones with the big, you know, yes. Yes. Um, the big muscles. And, uh, and so, um, and there was also, you know, our culture was really deeply homophobic at that time too. And so there was this belief that if a man spent like whatever was considered too much time shaping his body, mm-hmm. that, um, his sex, you know, his sexual orientation was questioned. And, um, so men tried to avoid drawing that kind of attention to themselves. Gyms were also not for the most part, the way we think of them today, <laughs> they, it, they were often kind of these like, dark, dank places, you know, the linking of fitness and luxury would happen a bit later. There was a, there was a very popular chain that eventually went bankrupt in the sixties called Vic Tannies. That Mm -hmm. was, but that he was a predecessor of making fitness luxurious. Yeah. But, um, yeah, for men, the rise of fitness also was much more focused on health. Um, in the 1960s, especially, the country was experiencing this cardiac crisis that at the time people thought affected, you know, people thought men's hearts were more vulnerable <laughs> than than women's. And so running and and swimming and and you know, cardio-based exercise was seen as a corrective for that potential antidote and corrective for that. It wasn't really until, um, and I'm, I am skipping over a little bit here cause I could, yeah, <laughs> this for is sure. but, um, I, one thing I found fascinating was just the role that Arnold Schwarzenegger played in yeah, normalizing. He shows up as like really supportive of the female bodybuilders. Yes, that uh, you, yeah. You highlight Lisa, right? Lisa, Lisa Lyon. Yeah. Yeah. 
they talk about him like training with her and yeah, go in on that a little bit. Yeah. And I just, and I was going to say, even for men, because he was this, like, he had so much personality and there's this really popular documentary called Pumping Iron that Mm -hmm. he is like one of the stars of, along with Lou Lou Ferrigno. And he made muscle aspirational for for men. And then um, he was, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there are some complexities to it, but, but for women as well. Um, So yeah, Lisa Lyon, who also, is someone who I think has been really forgotten by history and is a very fascinating personality figure. She won one of the first women's only bodybuilding competitions. And like by today's standards, she is, you know, for, for bodybuilders, she's teeny tiny. Petite. She was yeah. in, in the pictures in your book. She's like, I, I would see her on the street and think nothing of it. Nothing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And this was, I think it was the 78, 79 that she won her first edition, which is really around the time when these competitions were starting. And she, um, she really saw herself as kind of like a performance artist. Um, she worked out at gold's gym. She was a Beverly Hills native, went to UCLA, worked out at gold's gym. And that's where she met Schwarzenegger wowed by her. She was also, you know, very beautiful (laughs) and, um, just very charismatic. And, and he, he encouraged her and he helped her like be a guest poser at some men's competitions. And she became, even though she shied away from considering herself, she, she's, you know, she did not consider herself a feminist in the way it was defined at the time. And she didn't even consider herself an activist. However, for many years, she became, you know, she crusaded for women's muscle and for the idea that muscle and femininity were not mutually exclusive. And so as with many of the pioneers in my book, she helped to make muscle and strength feel palatable, acceptable at a time when, when all muscle, but especially on women was still considered kind of freakish. Yeah. And that's something that you return to a lot during your book is sort of the the conflicting marketing messages that women are, are forced to reckon with yes. through the ages. Um, working out to get smaller, this is how you get beautiful. And it was it was almost shocking to hear like to read through some of the the marketing copy that you included in your book that, you know, Jazzer size included or, mm. you know, Jane Fonda, you know, a lot of them talked about to get your motivation to where you want to be, stand naked in front of the mirror yes. and like pick yourself apart. What was yes. it like for you like reading those, but then still reckoning that with the impact that, you know, it was a means to an end for like a, a good goal to get women more, more into active activities? Yeah, that, I mean, you sort of pinpointed the biggest challenge of, of the book for me. I set out, you know, believing there, there was and is a very important feminist story here because I know, and I know from personal experience and from the women in my life and as a women's health reporter, you know, all of the many ways, including when it comes to mental health and emotional health and social communities, you know, the rise of fitness has benefited women. But of course, it's not that simple. You know, there, there are these other complexities. And I really wanted to try to... I was curious to see how beauty culture and fitness became so, you know, intertwined. Um, And one of my goals was really to, by increasing awareness about the way that they've been intertwined historically, was to allow women to harness the really positive, empowering parts of fitness and not have to suffer, you know, the feelings of guilt and shame and, and other more negative things that that 
historically have come along with it. So, um, yeah, when I was reading those sections and you'd be amazed, I mean, that exercise, no pun intended, of stripping <laughs> yourself down in front of the mirror and assessing your flaws or of like wearing skin tight clothing so you can better be aware of your, you know, so-called flaws was really consistent. I mean, I saw that across many decades. Yeah. I, I mean, um, it was always like a little bit, um, I mean, to, to today's ears, it's so shocking. I, yeah. I couldn't help yeah. but laugh, but it also even doing the work that I do and everything, you know, it, it made me feel a little self-conscious just reading mm-hmm. it now. And, yeah. and as I was thinking about you know, I sort of felt like I was spending time with each of these pioneers and I was thinking, well, gosh, like, what would they think? You know, what would they think if I, yeah. <laughs> we were working out together? Um, and, you know, I think in the early days, some of that was to just the idea that that exercise was a tool to shape your body, just period, was still new. Um, you know, dieting, diet pills, restricting diet culture was a major force in the 1950s and 60s, but exercising for weight loss had not yet caught on in a, in a major way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was like these pioneers or, you know, these early figures using whatever motivational tactics they felt would work. And unfortunately a lot, you know, that mentality though, got really deeply ingrained in the culture and became the primary motivator for many, many years. And you kind of close your book with, you know, the the chapter expansion, which is is so delightful. Um, and you feature, you know, a couple of the advocates that we're familiar with and have talked with too on a sweat life, Jessamine Stanley and Sadie from 305 Fitness. Um, so it seems like, you know, we're just now in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so starting mm-hmm. to recognize those messages and how they were damaging to, you know, the the evolution of women's relationship with exercise and fitness. And we're, we're just now starting to address it. So what was it like having that? I mean, that's like such a nice coda at the end mm. of your book um, mm. and having a, an optimistic outlook on that. Thank you. Well, yeah, it was very meaningful to me that the first chapter of the book is titled uh, Reduce. And the last chapter, like you said, is titled mm-hmm. Expand. And I loved how, you know, just thinking about it that way, helped me in thinking about all of the ways that that our understanding of fitness is expanding you know our understanding of what a fit body looks like of who deserves access you know who fitness is for mm-hmm. um and just what you know even just the definition of what what fitness means so it's interesting actually right before i started writing this book i wrote a piece for uh, one of the media magazines called Forge about the power of women taking up space mm-hmm. and how, you know, and and that it was sort of um, wonderful to know that I was working tor- up toward that, you know, throughout the yeah. whole book process. Yep. Um, but yeah, like you said, in the last five, 10 years, while it's very, very early days, I, I think we really have started to see a shift in the way that fitness professionals are talking about bodies and about goals and just about the benefits of exercise. Um, I think the language, especially that's being used has, has changed, um, you know, most, many, many uh, instructors and studio owners sort of have stopped referring to physical transformation Mm -hmm. completely. No more Um, like burning off your 
your dinner, like Ugh. your cheat weekend. And exactly. that's something that really I, I've started to notice. I, I taught group fitness for a, a short bit before the pandemic. And I've been thinking a lot about, I think I've told you this about Peloton and the language that they use. And mm. it's it's something that once you learn to listen for it, you can't turn that off in your brain, like the specific motivational cues that instructors are using yes. to get you to work a little harder. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I think there's been a move toward, um, especially among women, encouraging strength. Mm-hmm. There has been this recognition that mental health, you know, is is really important and can be benefited by fitness. And so, um, yeah, so there has been a shift. I think, you know, we still, again, we still have a long way to go, but I think mm-hmm. that it's, it's a good start. Yeah. Um, one thing that, you know, another recurring thread that I thought was kind of fun throughout your book and I did not mean thread as a pun, but you sort of weave in another pun, um, <laughs> the history of like women's workout wear in mm-hmm. your book. And, you know, that's something that I definitely take for granted my ability to wear a sports bra every mm. single day of my mm. life because we can't do underwire in a pandemic. Um, but also talking about, you know, the leotards and like the the functional outfits that, you know, sort of served a dual purpose of showing off what you're working with mm-hmm. and, you know, also just making it functional and comfortable to work out. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to sort of talk to us about, you know, how you wove in like the leotards and all of that fun stuff into the the history of fitness as well. Because I think it's something that the men reading your book would have taken for granted. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was just one of my favorite sort of threads, as you say, <laughs> to, to, I hate myself. No, you can that. see why I had so much fun writing about this. It's like, even if I had to cut some of the puns there, <laughs> it's, they're there. Um, so, um, yeah, I, you know, I think there's a, a fascinating story to be told in looking at the evolution of workout fashion and, and when various garments came onto the scene. Um, like you said, I mean, the sports bra was game changing and it was not invented until 1977. Um, before oh, that, was that before Catherine Switzer entered the Boston marathon? Oh, that was 10 years after. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And Catherine Switzer ran in, I wish, I, I hope she ran in all sorts of sort of um, creative getups. Like she, she ran in, she has some funny stories about running in, you know, like pantyhose and, mm-hmm. and tennis skirts. And mm-hmm. um, because, well, Bonnie Pruden was actually a very early advocate for exercise wear mm-hmm. um, because what existed before was, you know, women often to the extent that they worked out at all or that, you know, it would be in like collared shirts and, and tailored short shorts, not very comfortable um, and clothes that didn't always necessarily just like promote movement or really make you feel very good in your, yeah. you know, <laughs> in your own yeah. skin. Um but the sports bra, 19, what'd you say, 1977? Yeah. So mm-hmm. this, there was this relative status quo. And then by 1977, the women's running boom, largely ushered in by Catherine Switzer, had taken off. And um, a woman named Lisa Lindahl in Vermont discovered running, loved everything about it, except the fact that it made her chest hurt. And so after a run one day, she was on the phone with her sister and, you know, sort of complaining about this. And her sister said, yeah, they, they auto invent a jockstrap for women's breasts. Mm-hmm. And Lisa was like, no, but really. And she, um, 
she became determined. Her best friend happened to be a seamstress who she recruited to help design the prototype. And then another a third woman joined the effort as well. And uh, in the end, the, the first prototype was created from two sports bras being sewn together. Um, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. It became known as the, the jog bra and it grew into the jog bra company, which was a major company until it sold to um, Playtex. But yeah, so that it was really, it's really fascinating. And there's more in this in the book about how they brought it to market. Similarly, Lycra, which we now think of as just a staple of workout clothes, mm-hmm. you know, um, and pretty much all like American clothing <laughs> in general, um, was originally invented by DuPont to create a more comfortable girdle. Um, mm-hmm. Girdles were just insanely hellish to wear. Lycra helped a little bit, but but they embarked on this decades-long effort. And then basically not long after Lycra girdles went on the market, women began ditching their girdles in the name of, you know, liberation. It was liberation through fashion. However, it was then repurposed and became the fiber of, of workout leotards. Leotards, again, did exist, but they were made from, you know, natural fibers and nylon and they sagged and they just weren't always very flattering. Mm-hmm. And so Lycra, Lycra changed all that. Um, and now we have like different fabric for the different type of workout you're doing, the different leggings for every different activity. It, yes. It's wild how many more options we have these days. I thought that was just a really fun little foray in your book as well. We're also, you know, we're recording this in February. Your episode will come out in February. Um, so it's Black History Month. And there are a couple of like really notable Black women in fitness mm-hmm. that you you highlight. Were there any Black female fitness pioneers that really stood out to you during your research that um, you maybe didn't know as much about or that don't get as much recognition as what they deserve these days? Yes. Yes. So the history of fitness and women's fitness in particular is very is very white. Um, fitness was historically marketed to upper middle class uh, white communities, you know, with disposable income. Um, and... So there is, there's a lot to say, and I write about this in the book about just the, you know, the industry's history of exclusion, but along the way, there were several women of color who managed to break into the industry and become these, you know, models for, for other black women. And I was so fortunate to be able to speak with many of these trailblazers. And so Two women immediately come to mind. One was Janice Darling, who was an instructor at Jane Fonda's original work studio, which was in Beverly Hills, and then opened her own studio in Culver City and had a had a big following for a while. Um, she's just such she's an amazing person. She had endured like a a really terrible car accident, and she actually credited her fitness and her muscles with helping her recover and to be resilient. Um, and, you know, she said she, she was sort of an anomaly for experiencing the the success that she did, but she also felt like she didn't have some of the same opportunities that she saw her, her white peers sing. Um, Carla Dunlap, uh, who, is still teaching fitness down in Florida. Well, when I say teaching fitness, she's teaching a bunch of different classes. Uh, Pilates, she does pole dancing. She's a trainer. 
she was the first um, Black woman to win the Miss Olympia competition. Um, and, you know, looking back through old issues of Essence, she was just, she was, she was a hero to many Black women. Um, but she also talked about how she would win a competition and the publisher would put the third place finalist who was white on the cover because, you know, and he would say like, oh, they're more likely to sell magazines. So um, yeah, there were some really incredible trailblazers who helped to open more doors for women today. One of the things that, you know, has come up throughout your book too, in terms of, you know, the bar classes and, you know, even jazzercise and aerobics and yoga is this build towards the boutique fitness moment that we, I don't know if I can say we're in it now during the pandemic, but definitely before the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm was just a huge, huge momentum shift. I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts about how those trends sort of built up to where we were in the the 2010s and, you know, what sort of made that concept sticky among women, especially because by and large, boutique fitness is a female space, I think you would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, yeah, so, you know, boutique fitness, it's interesting to see the sort of the, the four mothers, you know, in the history of women's fitness, there were salons like Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, where women could go and while they were having a spa day, you know, um, take posture classes or kind of what was depicted in, if you saw like in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a more, mm-hmm. an even more mm-hmm. gentle version of that. But it wasn't like we think of group fitness today where, okay, like, you know, however many days a week or whatever you got, you know, you're going to your studio and you're sweating and, um, it was more sporadic. And then there was the rise of aerobics, which was also primarily a female space. And there was, there was Lottie Burke, there was aerobics. And so these were all the predecessors for, for boutique fitness. It was really, I, you know, I think based on my research, it was with the rise of yoga that we saw yeah. the evolution to to today's boutique studios coming out of the 80s where there had been these big box multiplex gyms and health clubs which were these like in many cities you know swinging single scenes and um and so hardcore in the 90s and 2000s then it was there was this shift in mentality that um working out didn't have to mean going to the gym and, and pumping iron, you know, or sweating until you, you know, your leotard was soaked. You could just go to a simple studio with mostly other women and experience a kind of refuge where you were working your body, but also, you know, um, experience something, experiencing something more kind of meditative. And I mentioned that because when you skip ahead a little bit, looking at like, you know, Soul Cycle has soul in the name. A lot of um, bar chains will will kind of encourage that um, you're stronger than you think you are. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> holistic yeah. mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the idea that you could just go to a small space and feel part of that close knit, the close knit community cultivated there, um, really helped to pave the way for the more contemporary boutique studios. And, and so many of the popular franchises started in the, in the early aughts between 2000 and 2010, you know, when you look at their exploding popularity in the 2010s, um, one thing to think about is, you know, that is when, um, millennials were coming of age and, you know, coming into their own income in some cases and, 
Um, I think, I think that the millennial mentality and, and inclination toward um, optimization and making, you know, and sort of incorporating work into parts of our life that um, didn't used to be considered work, you know, um, can help to explain the rise of, of especially some of the more intense, you know, workouts. Mm-hmm. All the hit training studios. Yeah. Yeah. Boot camps, yeah. hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, what do you think women are looking for in fitness classes and fitness leaders? Let's not call them influencers, but leaders <laughs> today. What do, what do you see trending up? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm always hesitant while we're living it to overgeneralize, but um, I do think a growing number of women are sort of moving toward, or at least interested in moving toward self-acceptance. The, even, you know, the, the idea that like we were talking about um, that you have to change the way you look to be acceptable, that there's one standard of beauty is really, um, you know, I think a growing chorus are kind of calling bullshit on that. And so I know many women who would just like walk out or never go back to a class if the, if the instructor was like better trim those eyes or your, you know, boyfriend's going to leave you. <laughs> um which somebody actually recently told me they had that experience and they, and it just, it just, uh, you know, to the class, it was not to anyone in particular. And they're like, first of all, you're assuming that, you know, I like, I'm, that I have a boyfriend that I I want a boyfriend. boyfriend, Yeah. 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 So, so, um, but it, I mean, it is amazing how prevalent that type of language used to be. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so lazy to default to that type of language these days. I think like, yeah, exactly do you can do a little better. Yeah. So I think women are looking for an environment that offers them a feeling of that, you know, allows them to celebrate their body and to appreciate what their body can do, uh, as opposed to how their body looks and that can help them feel truly strong. And, that offers a feeling of connection, you know, being part of a community. Um, I think there's something really powerful about feeling like you're a part of a community of other women too. I think women, I mean, everybody has a lot on their plate right now, but um, women in particular, I think are under some particular stressors. That's, that's a perfect lead into the the topic that I was going to close on, which was, you know, the pandemic of it all. Uh, Your book, came out the first week of January, 2022. I assume it was being edited for quite a long time before that. So like, when, when did you wrap writing your book as we see it now? And if you could add a coda about the, or an epilogue about the pandemic, and especially, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head with saying women are, you know, taking over a lot of the caretaking duties. They're stuck Mm -hmm. at home more, more than ever. Um, I'll, I'll leave that the rest of the question up to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. My timeline was I sold the book proposal in the fall of 2019 and I spent a few months kind of laying the groundwork, thankfully got in a couple trips <laughs> and then, but I, I wrote, you know, the first few sentences that are actually in the book in February, 2020. So the, the the entire book was written during the pandemic. Well, aside from those like three sentences, um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> <Very important. laughs> and yeah, um, and most of it too was written between the hours of five a.m. and nine a.m. While my you have uh, a young a young yeah, son, yeah, yeah, he was he was eighteen months really when the pandemic started, and so um, 
there was a lot of juggling happening. Um, I was I was very grateful for the respite that that the book working on the book offered me. And then and then I handed in the the final draft to be you know to be edited, but but which was close to what you see in, in the book uh, in March of twenty one. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a challenge to try to, I mean, on, on one hand, I was writing about history. However, you know, obviously I was writing about it because it was relevant to, it is relevant to the present and what was then the president. So I was, I was, you know, I felt it was very important to keep up with how things were changing during the pandemic and they, they were changing and are still changing so dramatically. Um, there were things, there were things in the, in like the final round of copy edits that we did tweak. Because mm -hmm. the world, you know, it was, there was a period when people had taken their masks off to go to the gym. And so yeah. it was like, I had to remove the mask thing, you know, and then I was like, wait, yeah. masks are back yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a great question about Okoda and maybe for the paperback edition, I'm sure, you know, I, I would love to, yeah, to add something. I mean, there's so much you could get into with, you know, virtual fitness, yes. um, you know, juggling workouts with caretaking and. Yes. At home equipment, uh, you know, making the the third space of the gym, you know, turning that into like your spare bedroom or spare corner mm -hmm. of your house. Um, and yeah, I feel like a lot of that disproportionately affected women too. Yeah, I I always think about when I interviewed Judith Lassiter, who was one of the founders of Yoga Journal, and you know, she's this she's this giant figure in restorative yoga, and just I think about something she told me, which is that women are desperate for refuge. And that idea just really resonated with me. <laughs> um, and part of her point was that, you know, for, for some women, the gym or their fitness community used to offer that, but as like the ante was up or as workouts became more intense, it, it, it felt more like work. And so it's, um, there's a, an opportunity there for fitness spaces to offer women refuge. Mm -hmm. And I say women, of course, this could be applied to anyone, you know, but, um, yeah. but as you pointed out and as you know, there, there has been a lot of coverage over the past two years about the burden of, um, childcare and other things falling disproportionately on, on women. Um, so I would maybe delve into that idea of refuge and, and in either a future book or future writing, I also am very interested in just exploring how to increase, continue to increase access to, fitness spaces and mm -hmm. continue to change, you know, what has historically been true in terms of fitness being a privilege instead of a right. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Last question. And it's a softball. What's mm -hmm. a workout or a workout leader, fitness instructor, whoever, something that you're loving right now that you would recommend our readers check out? answer is so, um, is so sort of generic. I'm laughing because I, before I heard the end of your question, I was going to say running. I really, yeah. <laughs> I really, I really enjoy running. That's great. <laughs> the, the hot new trend. <laughs> I know. So you're very on trend. People never have heard of it. Although actually, First on a Sweat Lives podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, I actually, I would, I would add though. Um, and I, I, I think I am part of a trend in this. This is funny. It's even more basic than running. Um, I have, I've developed a new appreciation for, for walking. Um, Amazing. I, <laughs> I live in New York city, so it's very easy to get out for a quick walk. Mm -hmm. And there used to be on days when I was too busy to run or just didn't feel up to it. You know, I would, I would often just like not 
leave the apartment and that didn't mm-hmm. feel good either. And so I've tried to be really conscious about trying to get out and breathe some fresh air and do something. And, and, you know, Peloton actually has a, some great walking workouts. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I love, I love those too. My sister has done those. Um, she's recovering from an ACL surgery and mm. she's done Peloton's walking programs because yeah. she can't run. So yeah, no, I'm with you. Uh, it may not be groundbreaking, but I do feel like people are having this sense of rediscovery yes. with running or walking, or even if, if they've written off running for years because they thought it was too hard. You have to do mm. too many miles to be a, a real runner, mm-hmm. air quote. I think the, the pandemic provided like a lower barrier to entry where it was like, well, I might as well jog a block and then see what happens. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, Danielle, you've been an amazing guest today. Thank you so much for coming on We Got Goals, the podcast. Uh, This is your self-promotional moment. Where can we find you on the internet? Where can we find your book? Um, If you're doing any virtual events coming up soon, uh, this episode will air, I think, February 9th. So anything coming up that we should be aware of? Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. You can find me on Instagram at Danielle Friedman Writes, um, where I share a lot of fun retro fitness content. The graphics are so fun. They're so fun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm on Twitter at D Friedman Writes, my website, which has a lot of uh, book related news and stuff, is Danielle Friedman.com. And um, I don't have, I have some in-person events, but, um, God, the novelty, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but stay tuned for more information on, on virtual events to and book available wherever books are sold. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. We got goals and we will talk to you soon, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you so much again. This has been another episode of We Got Goals, an AsweatLife.com production, and another thing that is better with friends. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing the audio and Ryan Barayuga for editing the video that you can find on YouTube. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, our title is hashtag We Got Goals. Yes, the hashtag. Make sure to rate and subscribe so that other people can find out about us. And follow us on all social platforms at A Sweat Life.